Father, we thank you that you are here. We thank you that scripture is alive, it is breathing. Lord, that you said that you are the word. The word brings life, it brings freedom, it speaks truth to us this morning. I pray that we would be ready to receive what you have to say, Lord, and that your Holy Spirit would just go before every word and prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I truly believe that on Sundays we come to experience God, but that when we come on Sunday and we experience him, it's not just so that we can have a good week, it's not so that we can go home feeling good, but we experience him so that we can go and share the experiences that we've had with others. You know, that is the mission that Jesus gave the church, and it's the mission that we live out at Zion, that we would go and disciple nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here at Zion, we have three values that we treasure, that we feel like we have been called to embody as the church, and that is community, discipleship, and creativity. And these are three things that we feel that God has just continually said to be as a church. And so we, in everything that we do, we want to see those things truly come alive, truly happen here at our church. And so we thank you for being a part of it. And what we are doing is we are going through a series called Gospels. Um, and we are looking at the book of Galatians. We just had finished a series in Acts and we learned about the beginning of the church, the early church. How did it get started? How did this movement begin? What was really its foundation and the groundwork? And then here in the letter to the Galatians, Paul, we're going to learn more about him. Um, we're, we're going through Galatians. This is our second week. And so in this week and next week, we're going to learn the testimony of Paul. Paul shares his testimony and and who he is. And what, what's happened in the church in Galatia is Paul planted that church uh, about a year prior. Uh, scholars believe that this letter was written in 48 AD. And so just prior to that, he, Paul had gone on a missionary trip to a lot of the Mediterranean. He planted several churches. And the church in Galatia was one of those churches. But since he had left, there had been other Christians that had come in and started teaching that yes, what Paul told you was great, but here are some extra stuff that you need. And so Paul finds out about this while he's on his trips, and he writes a letter to the church. And that's what we, we opened up last week with Paul's frustration in the church of Galatia saying, uh, how have, has it been that you've walked away so quickly from what I have taught you? And what we realize as we get deeper into this letter that what Paul is so frustrated about is something that I think today is incredibly relevant to the church and relevant to us. Because it's something that, it's not just what the Galatians struggled it with, but it's something that we as a church today struggle with. And it's adding things that Jesus never said to add to his news. And so, in Paul's frustration... He starts to defend what he says is the gospel. And he says, you have heard other gospels, but there is no other gospel but the one that I gave you. And if somebody adds to this, he says, even if an angel comes and tells you, even if I come later in the future and say that there's something more, 
that person should be accursed. Really strong words. Because what Paul says is if we begin to change the gospel, even in these slight ways that we see the Galatian church started to give into, then we lose the entire essence of the gospel. And when we lose that, we lose the meaning of the death of Christ, his resurrection, his incarnation. And so Paul, his first kind of defense of why he has the authority to speak what he's saying and why he is frustrated is his testimony. And so we're going to read the first part of his testimony today in chapter 1, starting in verse 10. And we're just, we're going to read through this with Paul and kind of go along with his logic. So starting in verse 10, we're picking up right where we left off from last week. And again, this is Paul writing a letter to the church of Galatia. He says, for I'm, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, what happened is Paul was being accused here of being a people pleaser. And the reason why he was being accused of being a people pleaser is because when he went and he preached the gospel to the Gentiles, what Gentiles were were non-Jewish people. When we were reading in Acts, we learned about the beginning of the church, and this was only Jewish people that were converting. So this was seen as a kind of Jewish religion that was starting, or a sect in Judaism. But what happened was, if we read further in Acts, if you read that on your own, you realize that God gave very specific instructions that what Jesus did was not just for Jewish people, but now he was extending his grace to all people all over the earth. Incredible thing. And so Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. And when he preaches this word, he preaches and he says, all you need is Jesus to get to heaven. You no longer have to follow the law of the Old Testament. And what that means is you don't have to be circumcised anymore. You don't have to go through the ritual and the rites that the Jewish people did on a daily, monthly, weekly, and yearly basis. These things no longer purify us. The only thing that purifies us is the blood of Christ. And so he was now being accused of being a man pleaser because, well, think of it, if you come to people and you say, well, you can get to heaven through Jesus. And it's like, great, all I have to do is believe. Yes, that's literally all you have to do. And then other people come and they say, well, no, actually, it's a little bit harder than that. you got to get circumcised. You know, for us that know what that means, imagine telling a grown man that in order to come to church on Sunday, you have to go through a circumcision. It's not really going to fly. I think... Uh, a lot of people are going to be walking away from the church at that point, right? And then he tells them that you don't have to be a convert to Judaism, that all you have to do is now believe in Christ. This is a new way. And so the Jews were accusing Paul of making something that is more palpable to Gentiles and watering down the gospel because they said, actually, the gospel is Jesus plus some other stuff. But what Paul was saying is the gospel is actually Jesus plus nothing. Because nothing else is needed but him. What his sacrifice and his life and his perfection encompassed all that we need. And we don't need anything else. And so Paul's defense here is he says man pleasing means having the fear of man instead of having the fear of God. 
And the fear of man looks like a lot of different things. We see a lot of different places in the Bible. And Acts, we kept on hearing this, this awe-inspiring thing that God had done. And people kept on being amazed and awe. And it's that same word that is used with fear. It's, it's this kind of like, wow, that is a powerful person. That person has sway in my life. It's this awe. It's this reverence. It's this respect. That's what the, the fear of God is. But Paul's saying, I'm not a people pleaser. Because people pleasing is, is fearing man instead of fearing God. And, and what that looks like, we see that a lot of times in the Bible. The, one of the places we see it is with King Saul in the Old Testament. And he had the fear of man. He was a people pleaser because he cared about the public opinion more than he cared about what God said. You know, today, in today's day and age, we care about being PC more than we care about being biblically correct. We care about where is the waves of culture going, where is, the, where is the media taking us, what can I say and can I say, and we look at scripture through those lens and we say, okay, what is culture telling me is good, what is culture telling me that is bad, and then we look at scripture through that lens and we say, well, I can't preach on this anymore, I can't say that anymore, well, God really didn't mean that, and here's a thousand steps to get to that place, because I'm really going to make some curves and some turns to get there. Paul had that, I mean, Saul had that same thing as king. He pleased the crowd, and that meant more to him than to God, and in a culture that we live in of political correctness, a lot of times that seeps in. We can be pleasing to other people and we get scared. And I, that doesn't mean don't use wisdom with how you talk because God gave us wisdom. But it also means that we don't change our understanding of the Bible based off the understanding of people. That there is something that is consistent about scripture and consistent about God that no matter how culture changes from today to tomorrow, my views and the truth of scripture does not change. So even though people may say, hey, we go this way, we look at scripture and we say, well, where does scripture say that we go? And next, another place that we see the fear of man come into place is with Samson. He was one of the 12 judges of Israel. And he was a people pleaser for sexual attention. If you read the life of Samson, he had uh, a woman that was in his life, but she was not the only woman. There was lots of different sexual situations that Samson got himself into. But Samson had an incredible call of God on his life. He had a clear mission of what he was supposed to do. He was one of the deliverers of Israel. He was one of the judges. He had a specific call from a young age. He was set apart. But yet the sexual attention that he was getting from Delilah was more important than what God had called him to do. And so he became a people pleaser because Delilah's opinion of him, Delilah's attention, Delilah's giving and satisfying of him was more important than what God was calling him to do. Another thing that the scripture talks about, that Paul actually talks about, is eye service. This is the one, again, that creeps up a lot. When we do things, not 
because we want to serve, but we do things so that other people can see them. This is something that I actually fell prey a lot to in my life. As somebody who was incredibly insecure, I used to serve in a public eye. Hey, did you see what I did before? It was good, right? Yeah. Right? Any, anything I did, even if I knew what I did was good, I would intentionally go up and ask like 30 people what they thought of it so that all 30 can affirm and tell me, oh, you did a good job. And that was an idol in my heart, what people thought of me. And as soon as people's opinions of me changed, either because I did something wrong or I did something that wasn't popular, then there went my emotions with it. The depression would seep in. Anxiety would seep in. Fear would seep in. And that's because my, my standing was constantly a public poll, a public opinion, right? And sometimes my disapproval rating was at 70%. Sometimes my approval rating was at 80%. And depending on where my approval rating was with others... That was how happy or depressed I was at night before I went to bed. But then when I learned that my standing is with God, not with man, I realized that I don't have to do things for eye service. Other people don't need to see when I do things. God knows and sees everything. And I'm good with him. Paul equates the fear of man with no longer serving Christ. With no longer serving God, that's what he equates the fear of man. We elevate others' opinions of us over God's opinion, and that will always lead to sin. I actually pray, I pray that God would forgive us as a church and as a people of worrying more about what others think of us rather than what he thinks of us. See, one of the main hindrances in, in sharing this good news and sharing the gospel of living a life that is worthy of Christ is so much of the fear of people, the fear of man, people-pleasing, seeps into our life that we begin to make decisions we look at these areas, maybe it's the public opinion, what will people think of me? Maybe there's a relationship in your life that you care more about than the relationship with God. Like what if I cut off this person? What if I no longer give myself to this guy or to this woman? What if we, we, we separate ourselves because this is unholy before God? What will they think of me? Well, I care more about what happens with this person than my relationship with God or everything that we do other people must see it and we only serve and we only give and we only do things because we know it brings the approval of others Paul literally equates this with not serving Christ and so as we think of this defense as we think of his testimony Let's think of it as a place of starting where we cannot think of our lives and we cannot think of our stories as one that will ever fear men.
but will instead be a life that fears God. Let's read verse 11 to 12. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me, that the, co- that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Even though Paul was not one of Jesus' original disciples, Christ bodily came to him after his resurrection. Luke tells us about this story in Acts 9. I'm going to give a a brief overview of it so that we can kind of understand who Paul is. Paul's original name was actually Saul. And Saul grew up as a Pharisee. And the Pharisee, they were the, 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 the sect of the Judaism that followed the law to the T. There was nobody that was more righteous than the Pharisees. They knew the law inside and out. They devoted their life to understanding it and to following it. And Paul actually calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning he was way above other people. He says he was advanced for his age, which is actually the same word that was used to describe Jesus when he went and taught in the temple and he began to advance in age, that he was above his peers, that he was learning and and growing faster than the people around him. So Paul was this incredibly zealous Pharisee who knew the law inside and out. So much, he was so zealous for it, that he became the head persecutor of the church. That when the church started, and it began to teach things that the Pharisees didn't agree with, he was the one that people looked to when they started persecuting the church, when they killed the first Christian. He was the one that they laid their garments before. He was the one that they sought approval after. He was the one that was in charge of the early church persecution. And even though this is Saul's life at this point, his name is still Saul, he's on this road one day, and he's with two other guys. And on this road, Christ meets him. And when Christ is speaking to him, these two other people hear, but when Christ comes, he blinds Saul. And he gives Saul instructions. I want you to go to this place at this time. Somebody's going to come and talk to you. But Saul's reaction to Jesus coming and visiting him is who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? And after that moment, Saul, that he was converted on that road, that he realized what he was doing was he was persecuting the risen Lord, the Messiah, the one who he had actually been studying about and waiting for his entire life. And so Saul makes that transition now to become Paul. And as Paul... He becomes one of the most amazing missionaries in church history. He leaves us so much of what we have as scripture in the Bible today in the New Testament. But Paul's, his his conversion, his meeting of Jesus on the road, and what he talks about here in verse 11 and 12, it underlines a a strong tenant of our faith. And that's this, it's personal relationship with God. See, God is our friend. He is our shepherd. He is our king. He is our father. These are not all terms that we 
if, we, if God was just our king, then yeah, it's impersonal in some sense. But God is also our father. He is also our friend. And one of the main tenets of Christianity is this, of not having this head knowledge of God. It, belief, when, it, when scripture talks about belief, it's not just talking about an understanding in your mind of God. Belief is actually personal relationship with him. Now what Paul is saying here that he has had this relationship with God, it actually is one of the core foundations of who we are as Christians, that we have this personal relationship with him. That the Bible actually describes us as knowing his voice in John 10. That it says that we are like sheep with a shepherd. That the sheep understand the shepherd's voice, and they can tell when it's not his voice. This is a personal relationship. This is not just some ethereal, like, yes, I understand that God is real. But if you don't experience that God is real, then you can always one day understand that he isn't. And that's what I love about God, is that he is alive. That he is here. That he is very much backing up his gospel today just as much as he did 2,000 years ago. That when the, the scripture says that the gospel is the power unto salvation, I have no problem making claims of his resurrection. I have no problem making claims of experiencing him because I know that today people are experiencing relationship with him just as much as they did 2,000 years ago when we were reading this letter. That Christ does not want to be some ethereal head knowledge in our mind, but he wants to be a personal relationship with us. He wants to be a personal savior. That as Christians, we can hear his voice. We can be directed by him. We can be guided by where he is calling us and where he is taking us. And a lot of times we look at belief and we forget that belief is a personal experience with God. And we may hit our, beat ourselves up and we're just thinking like, God, I, I understand. There's a lot of people that understand. I had a professor in college that knew more of the Bible than I did. He was an atheist. What he didn't have is this personal relationship with him. That was the difference between my understanding and his understanding. My understanding brought life, relationship, fulfillment, satisfaction that I could not find anywhere else. But Paul moves on. In verse 13, he says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. 
But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. There is so much to unpack here. Paul's life is one where he persecuted Christians. It's actually said that he would go house by house and drag them out of their home, men and women, and then throw them in jail. He murdered Christians. But, I love this but. It's a good soundbite for online. Right, so many times in our life we look in the mirror and we see all the dirty things that we have done. We look and we see, man, I am an addict. I am unfaithful. I am a liar. I am a thief. I am angry. I am hateful. I am vengeful. And we forget about the moment where it says, but God. And Paul had this life where he was literally a murderer. He was destroying families by ripping them apart and putting people in jail for the simple thing of having faith in Jesus. But in verse 15, it says, When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased... To reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles. We may think our lives cannot be redeemed. We may think we have done too much wrong. Yet here, who is a man who approved the first Christian's murder. And God was pleased to reveal himself. Saul, the murderer, was chosen by God before he was even born to be Paul, the apostle. A lot of times in our life, we cannot look past our current situation. We look at who we are and we say, God could never redeem this. How true it is. Because we know the depth of our soul. We know what we struggle with. We know the promises, the, the New Year's resolution year after year after year. We know broken promises. So at some point, we give up and we say, I'm never going to change this about my life. And I had been there so many times in my life. Yet it was through the word of others that they reminded me of scripture that God actually changes our lives, redeems the most broken parts of our soul. That when we think it is over in our life, 
we can look at the life of Paul and realize, but God was pleased to reveal himself. I look at my life and sometimes we see where we are and we cannot see into the future. And so we say, I'm never going to be somebody that God can use. I'm never going to be somebody that God works through. I'm never going to be somebody that gets this Christian thing right. Time and time and time again, I may have tried and I may fail, but you don't know what I've done in my life. You don't know who I've been. You don't know the places that I've went to, the things that I've seen, the stuff that I've said. man who had committed murder was set apart to be the one that would go and preach to thousands and plant churches all over the Roman Empire. If we are still alive, if we are still breathing today, God is still doing something in your life. He still has plans for you. He still has something that he wants to do through you. His redemptive work is still in process. We get saved, but then there's a process for sanctification. What I love about Scripture is that if you read Scripture, you realize that the Bible is actually about a lot of screw-ups. You read the lives of uh, of the people that we look up to, of the, the people that we think like, wow, we, we think of Moses, we think of, of David, we think of, of all these incredible people. You think of the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the patriarchs of, of Isaac. And when you read those, their lives, what was going on? I mean, Moses was visited by a burning bush, and he heard the voice of God, and still he did not trust God enough to even speak to Pharaoh. Moses himself was a murderer. Samson, one of the judges that we talked about, lived one of the most sexually addictive lives that you will ever read about in scripture. There was only one perfect person that came. And that was the only one that God needed. He's not asking you for perfection. He's not asking me for perfection. But what he is saying is that the life that you have lived, the life that you have, he is in the process and in the business of redeeming that. See, the things that have been used to destroy the church, the persecution of Saul was the very thing that God used to build it in the future. You do not know the plans that God has for your life, the things you've suffered through, the things you've been through, the things that you've done. You have no clue the plan and the redemption that God has in store. It says in verse 23 and 24, Paul says, They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. 
if God was able to redeem this hateful murderer, and he was able to redeem him in a, in a way that was for his glory, then I, I can look at my life and I, and I can say, God, you still have ways that you can use me. But Paul doesn't say here, look how cool I am. He doesn't say, he, look how much I have done in my life. He doesn't say, look how good I've been. Look at the great things that I have accomplished. Look at all of the amazing things that have happened in me because of how much will, willpower I have, because how amazing I am, because of all the knowledge I have. He does not say that. When he says, look at my life, he says, look at what God has done. See, what the people were trying to do here, the, the, these Pharisees that were coming in and being saved and then trying to push people away from the gospel, what they were saying is, well, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need this, and you also need to do that, and you also need to do this. And what that does is it says, yeah, I know I can get to heaven through Christ, but uh, what I'm also going to do is I'm going to do some stuff in my own strength so that when I get there, I can give God my laundry list and say, God, actually, look at what I have done to deserve to be here. But what God is saying is you do not deserve to be here. And even if that is the case, I still accept you to be here. Because in that scenario, there is only one person that can take credit. In that scenario, there is only one person that can get glory. And that is him. The moment we start saying, hey, I didn't curse this week. Like, I, I deserve to have a good day today. Like, yo, I tithe it. Where is my promotion? What we're going to God is we're saying, God, I'm equalizing the debt here, and I know you died for me and let me into heaven, but you still owe me some stuff because look at what I've done too. But Paul says, I can never repay him. Paul says, look at my life. Look how awful, look how sinful, look how much against the plan of God it Look at me now. He says, people have been glorifying God because of it. See, when our prayer is, God, I want you to have glory for everything that I have, for everything that I am, then we realize that if God is taking the glory, then God is doing that work in our hearts. I'm not looking at all the different things that I can do, but what I'm doing is I'm just saying, God, I trust you that you're going to take care of it. Too many times we think we're beyond repair, we think we're too far gone, and that's because too many times we've tried to do it on our own. But yet... God is saying, I have done it. 
And when we rest in the fact that he's done it, when we rest in what Christ has already done, that we are allowed into his presence, that we can have this personal relationship and revelation of God, that we messed up human beings can be in relationship with God Almighty, creator of universe. That changes our life so dramatically that Paul actually changed his name because he was nothing of what he used to be. And when that happens, people glorify God because our salvation is not just so that we can have a good day, so that we can get a promotion, so that we can stop cursing, so that we can live a forever good afterlife. Our salvation always points to a Savior. And what other people should see is our life pointing to a Savior. And they should see our life and say, man, if God can do it in her, if God can do it in him, then God can also do it with me. And I pray that us as a church, that we live our lives that glorifies God. I've been to so many places. I've met so many Christians that when I look at their life, I think, man, if you were the only thing I knew about Christianity, I would not be a Christian. Because unfortunately, the church is known for gossip. It's known for bickering. It's known for, for just so much infighting and posturing and man-pleasing and all this other stuff. But what, what God centers us on, and Paul says, is that our lives should reflect his glory. And so I pray that as a church that we don't fall into this, that we would say, God, let our church, let our lives, let it reflect who you are. Let it reflect what you've done. That when people look at my life, that they would not see the outcomes of Justin. But that they would say, man, he must have been with Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team up now. As I was praying about this message, what I just sense now is this deep burden. Father, that we would reflect you. We love, I love to hear about what you do and people that don't deserve it. I love to hear about all the amazing things that happen in lives so that I, I don't lose hope. But at the end of the day, I don't, want, I don't want to be alive in you just so that I can be a happy person. I want to be alive in you and so that I can reflect who you are, so that other people would come to know you through my life. That when people see me, they say, that cannot be a human experience. That cannot be something that has happened from human design. There must be a savior. There must be a God. There must be supernatural power on earth because I knew who you were. A lot of people here don't have the privilege of knowing my pre-Jesus days. But I remember there are people in my life 
that before I truly surrendered to Christ, there was just, I was a person like anybody else. But I went away for a year, and it was a year of me just truly experiencing God, having him be my personal savior, not just one I knew about from others. And I remember this very specific thing that happened. I, I came home, and I was hanging out with one of my friends. I had known her since I was in seventh grade. We always hung out every once in a while. She's not a Christian. Her family's not a Christian. And I went, and I, I went to say hi to her, and her mom was at the door. And I had just been back maybe a week or two weeks. And her mom said, man, what happened to you? It's like, what do you mean what happened to me? She's like, I don't know. You just, you look different. Something happened. You, you just don't seem the same from last time I saw you. Because the, the change that God did was something that was evident inside and out. And at that moment, I got to tell her, God changed my life. He changed who I thought I was. He changed who I thought I'd be. And what you're seeing is the evidence of that change. And fast forward a few years later, and the lady contacted me. She said, hey, I've been thinking about going to church. And I remembered what you had told me way back then. You seem like a, a real Christian, like one of those people that, like, if I want to do this, I know something happened in your life, and I think I need that same thing. I say that to give glory to God, because I can tell you I didn't do that. I've tried everything in the book to do things on my own, and nothing ever worked. But the moment I trusted Jesus as the only Savior, he began to do his work. Pray with me. Father, I pray that Zion would reflect your glory. Lord, I pray that when people come into our community, they would say, look at what God has done. They would not look at this as something man-made, as something created by people, but they would say this is something that a supernatural power's hand had to touch. And Lord, I thank you that we see evidence already of that today. Lord, I pray that in our own lives, that you would have all the glory, that we would allow you into our hearts, that we would trust in you for everything and anything, that we wouldn't believe the lie that we're too far gone, that we wouldn't believe, Father, what, what, what our heart will say about us, what the enemy will try to deceive us into, that nothing will ever change, but that we would remember the testimony of Paul today, that once he was hateful, once he was a murderer, once he was a persecutor, but yet you set him apart and were pleased to have him know you. 
Make it our prayer, Father, that our lives would reflect your glory. Why don't you stand with me?